0: take your copy of God's Word and be finding your place with me in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I began a brief series of sermons through this chapter, I began that two weeks ago on Easter Sunday and really this chapter is known as the resurrection chapter of the Bible Uh, simply because more so than any other chapter in the New Testament, uh, there's more that's taught on the subject of the resurrection here in this chapter, really than anywhere else. Uh, That's true both of Christ's resurrection, the Apostle Paul uh, has something to say about Christ, his resurrection, the truth of his resurrection, but most of the chapter uh, presents us with sort of a doctrine of the resurrection and the theology of the resurrection And the truth is, just as there was bodily resurrection for the Lord Jesus, there will also be future bodily resurrection for those who are in Christ for the believer. And that's a truth that's really driven home uh, in this 15th chapter. Which, by the way, there's nothing that will build your faith, strengthen your confidence any more than understanding the truth that's contained here in this passage of Scripture. And we really need the confidence that comes from this truth in this chapter, especially living in these days. So when we refer to the doctrine of the resurrection, what is it that we refer to? Well, it involves the ultimate end of everything that God has planned in redemption. How all of it is going to ultimately culminate one day in the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth which according to 2 Peter 3.13, in which righteousness will dwell. And so the redemptive plan of God involves our personal salvation, uh, salvation involving the spiritual man, but also the body. God has a plan for the body. God has a plan for all of the created order, and Christ has secured the redemption of that entire order. Um, I I read a quote that I thought was so good by a, a guy by the name of Eric Sauer, but he said that this present age is Easter time. It begins with the resurrection of the Redeemer and ends with the resurrection of the redeemed. Between lies the spiritual resurrection of those called into life. He says, so we live between two Easters and in the power of the first Easter we go to the second Easter. Now, think about that. We live between two Easters. What is it that God is doing presently all throughout the world? Well, He's building His church. Uh, there is new, He's raising the dead to life again in Christ. That's what He's doing now. People are being saved, the church is, 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 is being built. God's kingdom has come in the invisible sense. And one of these days, the trumpet's going to sound at the return of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says the dead in Christ will rise, and that second Easter will be experienced. When the dead in Christ rise, they're given their resurrection body. And the Apostle Paul even mentions that there's a mystery truth here. There will be a generation of believers who were alive at the coming of the Lord, who will not experience physical death, but in rapture will be instantaneously changed, and they too will be given Resurrection glorified bodies. And let me tell you something. In those resurrection glorified bodies, you're not going to have to count calories. Uh, You're not going to have to visit the gym and all of that. Those bodies are not going to be subject to age. The process of breaking down. They're going to be glorified resurrection bodies patterned after our Lord's own resurrection body. And so all of this is the truth that's emphasized here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I've pointed out to you in the first 11 verses, the Apostle Paul explains how our gospel is a resurrection gospel. And he reminds these Corinthian believers of the gospel that he preached when he was there, uh, by which they were saved. The truth that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised to life again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And after his resurrection, Paul makes the point that Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. And many of those eyewitnesses were alive. They could be interviewed, even at this time of of Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. So he's, he's emphasizing the fact that our gospel is a resurrection gospel. And then he sort of shifts gears by the time you get to verse number 12. And he Not only does he mention resurrection gospel, but he talks about the resurrection hope that we have as believers. And what he does beginning in verse 12, he sort of presents this hypothetical situation in which he imagines what if there were no resurrection. Now there were some who had been troubling the Corinthian church there in the city of Corinth with this philosophy that there was no bodily resurrection, Greek philosophy, the Greek worldview of the time, ruled out the fact uh, that there was a future bodily resurrection. That's why in Acts chapter 17, when Paul preaches there in the city of Athens, he's basically laughed off of Mars Hill when he mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Resurrection was something that uh, the Greeks did not believe in. It went against their worldview. They believed that the body was bad, and so What everyone wanted ultimately was to be delivered from the body, which was really a prison for the soul. Well, from Athens, Paul goes to Corinth, Acts chapter 18, 45 miles to the west of Athens. He preaches the same gospel. The church is planted. There are believers who welcome that gospel, receive that gospel, they're saved by that gospel. And so now Paul is writing back to these Corinthian believers because evidently they had been troubled by that same philosophical approach that denied bodily resurrection. And so Paul presents this hypothetical situation in verses 12 through 19 in which he imagines what if there were no resurrection? He mentions at least six logical consequences that would follow were there no bodily resurrection. He says if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching would be in vain. Our faith would be in vain. He says the apostles themselves would all be liars. Ultimately, we would still be in our sins. And he says those who have died in Christ would have perished. There would be no hope whatsoever that we would ever be reunited with those of our loved ones who've died in the Lord were there no bodily resurrection. And so he sort of sums that up in verse 19 by saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. If all Christianity is is something to help you cope, if it's a coping mechanism for the problems that you experience in this life, if that's all it is, Paul says, then we're of all people the most to be pitied. But then he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and that changes everything. And so really, what I want to do, I want us to begin looking at verses 20 through verse 28. And in this section of the chapter, uh, Paul mentions something about resurrection guarantee. We have a resurrection guarantee And it's all founded upon the fact that Christ himself is risen. So there in verse number 20, let's begin reading. Uh, Paul says, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. So in this section, Paul is saying that resurrection is guaranteed for the believer because Jesus Christ himself has been raised. Those who are in Christ will experience future bodily resurrection just as Christ himself experienced bodily resurrection. He's the first fruits. And uh, that's language that comes out of... of, uh, uh, The harvest, the idea of a harvest, there will be a future harvest. Christ is the first fruits, but there is a harvest to come. Those who are in Christ, they too will experience bodily resurrection. So really there are several things in this passage that I want to draw your attention to. I'm going to take a couple of weeks to look at this passage. Uh, The first thing that we'll notice is the theological argument that Paul is making here in this text. And then that's going to be followed up later on. We'll look at how there's a chronological sequence to the resurrection. What is the sequence? Uh, In light of that first Easter morning, when Christ himself was raised to to life again, what is the sequence? Um, There's an order. In fact, that word is used there in verse number 23. There is an order to the resurrection. And then we'll look at the cosmological result. You say, well, what does that mean? What's, what's the conclusion of all of this? Where's all of this headed? Where is history headed? Uh, what does the resurrection mean for the universe, for the, the, the entire of redemption, uh, the entire of the created order? And so Paul is going to deal with that as well. So number one, notice with me the theological argument for this resurrection guarantee And this is what Paul deals with in verses 20 through 22, which, by the way, these are some of the most important verses in all of the New Testament. And so it begins with an affirmation, then, that's made. There's an affirmation there in the first part of verse 20 where Paul says Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. This is not a theory. The resurrection of Jesus is not some mythological idea. This is not wishful thinking on the part of the apostles and the early church. This is not a made-up story. You know, ever so often you'll hear, you know, these ideas that the Jesus of history is different from the Christ of faith. Oftentimes around Easter or Christmas you'll see these religious specials that will be on certain channels, certain networks that shall not be named, CNN, <clears throat> but... Uh, but often you'll hear some scholar say something like this, some liberal scholar, that the Jesus of history is different from the Christ of faith. The fact that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died is an indisputable fact of history. But, but the idea is, the logic is, somewhere along the way, he became bigger than life, and his followers, out of just some idea of wishful thinking on their part, they just, they just made up this whole idea of the resurrection. But folks, let me tell you something. The Jesus of history is the Christ of faith. And the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ is empty to this day and stands as verifiable proof that he is risen, that he is Lord. And so that means that Christianity is a historical faith. It's grounded in the facts of history. There is empirical forensic evidence that sets Christianity apart from every other worldview and every other belief system. Christianity stands upon the objective reality of major supernatural events that have happened in real time and space. Someone has well said that faith, no matter how sincere, it's only fantasy if it's based on bad information. <laughs> You'll hear someone say something like this every once in a while. Well, all you need is faith. Well, that's, a, that's, that's an incomplete statement. Tell me what you're placing your faith in because your faith is no better than the object of your faith. The 16th century, there were, there were two Spanish explorers. Their names have been you know, memorialized in history. One of those explorers was a guy by the name of Ponce de Leon. How many of you have ever heard of Ponce de Leon? Uh, He set out to discover the the fabled fountain of youth. I think it was in 1513 or so, he set out from Puerto Rico on this quest to discover the fountain of youth. The only thing that he found was the state of Florida, okay? Okay. And so now, I guess there's this quest that folks wanna take every so often to go to Florida to try to find the Fountain of Youth. And they say it's somewhere in Orlando. Maybe Walt Disney found it, and built a theme park around it. I don't know. But there was another explorer, Spanish explorer, who who was on a quest the exact same time that Ponce de Leon was trying to find the Fountain of Youth, a fellow by the name of Hernan Cortez. And Cortez, set out to discover the the ancient capital of the Aztec Empire. Now he had evidence from history to back up the claim that this city that he wanted to discover actually existed. There was evidence of a king from this city whose name was Montezuma. Well, guess what happened? November, I think it was November 3rd, 1519, Hernan Cortez and his team of explorers laid eyes upon that city. Uh, It's now somewhere in the middle of Mexico City, the the, the ruins of that ancient Aztec city. What made the difference? What was the difference? Folks, listen to me. Uh, Faith is no more than fantasy if it's based on bad information. Do you know that Christianity is not some mythical quest for some fountain of youth that does not exist? But there is verifiable objective truth and evidence from history that Jesus Christ is indeed who he said he was. And the evidence is there and the evidence stares us in the face. The question is, do you believe it? Have you personally come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's the affirmation that Paul is making there in verse 20. Christ in fact has been raised from the dead. Now, notice he mentions an illustration. Not only does he make an affirmation here, but he gives us a, a helpful illustration. In fact, he uses two illustrations. The first is that of the harvest. Uh, he says that Christ is the first fruits of a harvest which is still to come. Now, I'll get into that a little bit later on. We'll come back to that in another week or so. The second illustration that he gives is that of sleep, sleep. Christ is risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and that's reference to those who have died in Christ. So death is compared to sleep for the child of God, and that's nothing to fear, is it? Oftentimes, we're so fearful when it comes to death and this subject of dying. We want to avoid it. We don't want to talk about it. But in light of what Christ has done, we should fear death no more than putting our head to the pillow at night when, he, when we crawl into our bed. Now, keep in mind, this does not mean soul sleep. Whenever this language is used, when the believer who's died in the Lord. The language of sleep is used. It's always used in reference to the body. Because when a believer dies, we know that their spirit departs to be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when I come to the time of my own death, should Christ not have come? Uh, At that point, my spirit will depart to be with Christ. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. What about the body? Well, you know the process of decay sets in. The body of dust returns to the dust from which it was taken. Yet, God has a plan for the body. At the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a great getting up morning. And the dead in Christ are going to be the first who are given their resurrection bodies. And then the the, the generation of believers who are alive at the coming of the Lord, they're going to be raptured. They too are going to be given glorified resurrection bodies. And so there's a temporary separation then between the believers spirit and body. Whenever physical death happens, My spirit will go to be with Jesus while my body sleeps in the dust of the earth waiting resurrection. That's why death is not loss for the child of God. That's why Paul could say what he does in Philippians chapter one. He says Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. He says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, do you live your life with that kind of confidence as a Christian? To live is Christ, and to die is gain. The word gain there, uh, it's a word that means ultimate advantage. For the believer in Jesus Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is the ultimate advantage. He says to depart and be with Christ. This is far better. That's nothing to fear. Yet, oftentimes, I think we're so programmed in our thinking that we shrink back from this statement. We think, how is this so? Everything within a person tries to avoid the inevitable. When our loved one dies, we feel the loss, right? That's a loss we can't ignore. It's a loss we can't minimize. When Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church. He doesn't downplay the fact that we sorrow and that we grieve, but he does say that we sorrow as those who have no hope because there is resurrection promised for the child of God. And he says we ought to to comfort each other with these words. The truth of resurrection, the truth that for the believer to die in Christ is gain. It's not loss. So how is it then that he can make such a confident, bold statement like that? To live as Christ to die is gain. Well, let me tell you, I believe that the explanation for that is found here in 1 Corinthians 15. And in particular, verses 21 and 22. These are two of the most important verses in the entire New Testament. So notice the explanation then that's offered by the Apostle Paul. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what Paul is doing then in these verses, he's addressing the origin of death. Why is there death? Why is there dying? We know that it shouldn't be this way. Something deep down within us wants to hold on to our loved ones when they're at their moment of death. Why is it then that death... Is a part of man's story. Well, let me tell you, Paul deals with that. And the Bible's the only place where you're going to find answers to that question. No other religion has answers to that question. No other worldview, no other belief system, no other philosophical system can answer that question of man's problem. So what Paul does then in verses 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he gives us a concise explanation for everything that is wrong with man's world. It was through one man, the first man, Adam, that death has passed to all men. And so what you have here then is the doctrine of federal headship. Because Adam is the federal head of the human race, Sin and death has been passed on to Adam's descendants. That means to be in Adam is to be a member of a fallen race. And this explains why there are so many problems in the world. You want to know why there's injustice in the world and why there's sickness and disease in the world and why people are the way that they are in the world? Why is it that we're often at war with ourselves? And why is it that we're never ultimately satisfied? The answer lies in the fact that Adam's blood flows through our veins, men and women. Human beings are born in Adam and that is why we die. And it's all part of the curse brought on by Adam's sin. So what Paul summarizes in two verses here in 1 Corinthians 15, he deals with in length in Romans chapter 5. Turn to Romans 5 for just a second and see what he says by way of a little bit more light, a little bit more insight into this idea of federal headship. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he goes into several verses to talk about how death reigned from Adam to Moses. And he goes on to explain how there's judgment. Being in Adam has resulted in judgment, it's resulted in sin, it's resulted in death. And yet there's an alternative to that. That salvation is for those who were found not in Adam, but those who are in Christ. So, why is there death? I'll tell you why there's death, because there's sin. And so several things to keep in mind about this. Death, first of all, death is the result of sin. Romans 6.23 says death is the appropriate wage that sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. Someone says, "I, I want what I've got coming to me. Have you sinned against God? You say, I have sinned against God. Then you know what? If we truly got what we got coming to us, all of us should die. Because the wages of sin is death. And you can't even begin to appreciate the grace of God until you understand the seriousness of sin. And so if sin is man's problem, why is it then that sin has disappeared from so much of our modern vocabulary? Many years ago, there was an American psychiatrist. He, was, he really was world-renowned, uh, Carl Menninger, but he, he wrote a book, Whatever Became of Sin? It was a controversial book, But basically, he pointed out how society at large had rejected the notion of sin and had substituted other words for the word sin, words like disease and antisocial behavior, phrases like lack of moral development. He had noticed how so many of these phrases had replaced sin as explanations for human behavior. And so basically, he set out to want to really recapture the use of that word. He found it to be so very important. That was nearly a half century ago. You just ask the average person what sin is now, and they have a hard time explaining it. We think of bad things that we do. Why is it that we do what we do? Can you explain that one for me? Why does a person do the things that a person does? Why is it that society is the way that society is? You'll find a number of explanations and a number of answers, but, but aside from the truth of the Bible, there is no sufficient answer to that question because it is the Bible, it is the truth of the Word of God that deals with human nature. You've got some who deal with sins specifically from pulpits, and they never really get around to the gospel. We don't want to go that route. I don't want to be a preacher who's always preaching sin, 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 but never pointing people to the cure, the gospel hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Then there's another alternative. So much of liberal Christianity have have abandoned this doctrine of original sin, and they only locate sin in the structures of society. It's not the individual... Now, it's the structures of society. So what we've got to do then, we've got to change the structures. We've got to defund the police because the problem is in the structure. There's, there's systemic problems and that's where you find sin. All the while, nobody wants to look at themselves in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm the reason for so many of my problems. So what is sin really? That word sin, um, the Greek word that's used at least 174 times in the New Testament, it's a word that means to miss the mark. Sin is missing the mark. It's failure to live up to God's standard. It speaks of this inability to meet God's holy and perfect requirement. What is his requirement? His law says be holy for I am holy. So the standard is perfection, divine perfection. And is there any one of us who can say that they've lived up to that standard of divine perfection? No, the Bible says there are none righteous. No, not one. The Bible says all have sinned, all have missed the mark, all have failed to live up to that standard of divine perfection. Now stay with me here, because I'm going to tell you this is going to get a little painful. But I promise you, I'm not going to leave it there, okay? So just stay with me. There are other words in the New Testament that are often translated uh, with language that we associate with sin and sinful behavior. Uh, you've got one, a Greek word that's often translated as transgression, it's a word that means to step across a line. It's the idea that sin means stepping across the line. God has drawn the line. Sin is stepping across that line. Uh, that's what original sin means. It's what it refers to when Adam. God told Adam, clearly, Adam, don't eat from this particular tree. Don't eat this fruit. This fruit is off limits. This fruit is forbidden. What did Adam do? He transgressed. He trespassed. He stepped across the line. And so original sin, the doctrine of original sin, uh, refers to Adam's original choice of disobeying a holy and righteous and perfect God. He stepped across the line. There's another word translated iniquity or lawlessness. Uh, It's this idea that sin is breaking God's law. A person spurns God's holy law because they want to go their own way. They want to define their own version of morality. They don't want to bow to an objective standard that God has set forth. But they don't want to confess that words written in stone with the finger of God, that this is his law and this is the objective standard. And so iniquity is lawlessness. Another word uh, is the word offenses or trespasses. And it translates a Greek word in the New Testament that means to slip, to stumble, to fall. It's this idea that we are weak and powerless and completely unable to live up to God's holy standard. It's what Paul, Paul uses this word in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before you were saved, that's exactly where you were. That was your condition. That's the condition of humanity in Adam. Dead in trespasses and sins. A fifth word that's used in the New Testament is often translated as debt. It's the word that's used in the model prayer where Jesus said, forgive us our debts. What's that saying about sin? Well, it means that every sin, every trespass, every transgression, every time you've stepped across the line, every lawless act of iniquity where you've sinned against God, that means it's put you in debt to God. And as a sinner, you've robbed God of what is his, that's righteousness, obedience, you've violated his will, you've stepped over his line, you've missed his mark, and all of that has caused you to incur a debt with God that must be paid. Now here's the thing, you don't have anything in your bank account. So how in the world do you think that you're going to be able to pay back the debt that you owe a holy and righteous God? Which is why religion, then, is not the ultimate answer. It's why church attendance is not the answer. Listen, you can be baptized so many times that the fish know your social security number. But that is not the answer. Your religious actions, this idea of your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds, as if that's going to pay off this astronomical amount of debt that you owe a holy and righteous God. Religion will leave you dead and enslaved. You've got to have somebody pay the debt for you who actually has something to offer God. What are you talking about? You need a substitute. You need someone with perfection. You need someone who has kept the law of God sinlessly. You need, listen, someone who has, who has always hit the mark. Someone who has never stepped across the line. Someone who has never stumbled. Someone who has never, never, never incurred a debt against Almighty God. And men and women, there's only one person who's ever lived in human history that qualifies and his name is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. (laughs) And so again, I have nothing that can atone for my sin left up to myself. And because humanity is in Adam, with Adam as its federal head, humanity is under the condemnation of sin. And Paul says as much in Romans 3. He deals with this idea of federal headship, Romans 5. He's dealt with personal responsibility. By the way, sometimes people want to kick against this doctrine of original sin and they say, say, why should I be held responsible for something that Adam did? And so this doctrine of original sin is something that really is militated against, especially in our individualistic Western worldview. But I've got news for you. Evidence of original sin, it's evident in your life. When you look at your life under the microscope, your conscience even tells you you've sinned against God. You know that you've missed the mark. You know that Adam's nature has been passed on to you as one of his descendants. And so folks, this is why we've got to understand that it's only the Bible that gives us an explanation for the basic elements of human nature. You won't find this anywhere else in the world. There's no other philosophical system that deals with it. Man tries to come up with answers and solutions, but let me tell you what he's doing. He's putting a band-aid on an incurable wound And so much of the language today, by the way, listen to me, so much of the language surrounding issues of racism and systemic racism and all of this, man is pretty good at pointing out specific sins, but he doesn't have a clue that there is a deeper issue. Why are there specific sins? It's because of who man is at the core of his being. The very center of man has been affected by the cancer of sin and man's case is terminal. And that's why Paul says that those who are in Adam die. The wages of sin is death. And the experience of sin, it's obvious. We can do nothing to restrain our own behavior no matter how hard we try. And so man has turned to all of these social ideas to try to rationalize why he is the way that he is. And so what man does, he says, well well, maybe, maybe if we could just change man's environmental factors, that would solve man's problem. Or if we could address the economic disparities in society, then that would address man's problem. Or if we could just give man better education. He's not evolved quite fully yet all the while he's abandoned any notion whatsoever that the Bible contains the answer to his dilemma so he tries to treat the symptoms apart from an accurate diagnosis you've been keeping up with the news this week many of you saw the news this week about the 30 year old woman in California who confessed to killing her three children One of those little girls was three years old, her baby brother was two, the littlest was six-month-old, a six-month-old little girl, and when the story broke, the children were all found stabbed to death in a scene that left first responders shaken and in need of counseling. But did you hear her confession? As the news continued to come out later this week, she said that she did it to save them from the abuse of their father. And I'm quoting her. Here's what she said in her own defense. She said, I have always been a person who has basically been for helping people. I've always been a social justice warrior for equal rights. I've always tried to be a human rights activist. So in her twisted mind, she has justified the murder of her children. Why do we do the things that we do? Are we left to assume that her problem is her environment? Was it the economy? Was it the system? Her problem is that she is in Adam and in Adam all die. Her problem is that she is a sinner, therefore she sins. We tend to think that, you know, I'm a sinner because I sin. but you know something? Original sin means that you sin because you are a sinner. That's the identity with which you come into this world. You are in Adam, and you have got to have God do something for you in order for you to have any hope of rescue whatsoever. What is it that God is in the business of doing? He's in the business of rescuing the fallen members of Adam's race through his own marvelous grace. And these effects of sin are deadly, and they're far-reaching. So death is the result of sin, and then death is universal in its scope. Paul says, as in Adam all die, death is spread to all men. By a man came sin and death, and in Adam all die. It's without loophole. It's without double standard. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. That means death is the one appointment in your calendar that you're sure to keep. You're not going to be late for it. And then something else to consider, death is an enemy. It's an invader into God's good creation. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Death is the legacy of the first man. It's the inheritance that he's passed along to his descendants. Just outside the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve began having children... The fourth and fifth chapter of Genesis, Adam's legacy echoes with an eerie emphasis. You read about how he had sons and daughters that were born to him and they died. And then his sons, they had sons and daughters born to, and then they died. And there's just this emphasis just over and over and over again, and he died, and he died, and he died. So like king and queen Sin and death rule together over our broken world. In Adam all die. There was a far reaching relationship between the death of Adam and the death of his descendants and it was his sin that catapulted the entire human race into the reality of sin and death and that's why I've said this is painful because it's the awful news that we can't avoid and in our attempts to want to evangelize a lost world We can't minimize this, we can't soft pedal here, we can't back up here. Because folks, the good news will never be good news until you first understand what I've just told you. Now for the medicine. You see what else Paul says in verse 22? He says, as in Adam, all die. And I'm so glad that there's a comma there uh, rather than a period. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's not a proof text for universalism. That doesn't mean that everything ultimately is going to be okay for every single human being who's alive and well, and everybody's going to be saved. And there is no hell, and there is no judgment, because Jesus has come, and the cross was all about divine love, and therefore everybody's going to be saved. That's not what verse 22 is saying. It says, Those who are in Christ shall be made alive. Who are those who are in Christ? Those who are in Christ are those who have believed the gospel of Christ. Those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have personally repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Christ, who've welcomed and believed the gospel. And so just as there's a correlation between Adam's sin and death and those who are in Adam, so also there's a correlation between Christ's death and resurrection and those who are in him. It is through Christ that sin and death have been defeated. Where Adam is the federal head of a fallen race, Christ is the federal head of a new race. And as we live in a world that wants to put people in categories, there are really only two categories biblically. The world wants to divide up in terms of their skin color and their political stripe and their geographical location. And whether or not they like strawberry ice cream or frozen yogurt. Listen, the world wants to put you in a category, but there are only two categories ultimately that matter. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. And folks, let me tell you, those of us who are in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you're black and in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're white and in Christ. It doesn't matter if you speak Spanish and you're in Christ. You speak German and you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are my brother and my sister in Christ. And that is the unity that the world cannot have that God only gives to those who are in Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that the world needs to hear. They need to be able to see it when they look at the church. I got to stop. But you see, all throughout history, the devil has had one trump card, and it's the fact that God declared man die for his sin because man is in Adam. There's none righteous. The wages of sin is death. And so as the accuser, this is what Satan has appealed to in his attempt to want to destroy humanity and rebel against God. But you see, in his own death and resurrection, Jesus has taken away the trump card out of the devil's hand. And that's why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and I see Christ there who made an end of all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, King of glory, king of grace one with himself I cannot die my soul is purchased by his blood my life is hidden with Christ on high with Christ my savior and my God and aren't you glad that you have that confidence this morning let's stand and pray let's stand and pray every head bowed and every eye closed For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The thing is, we come into this world in Adam by means of your natural birth and in Adam all die. But in Christ all shall be made alive. How then can a man or woman be found in Christ? How can they be given a new identity? I'm so glad you asked that question. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever, that means any member of Adam's fallen race, whosoever believes in Christ should not perish but have everlasting life. And so you believe Christ, you believe the gospel, you turn from sin and self. Here's what God does, he takes you, delivers you from this domain of dar- darkness and he transfers you into the kingdom of his own son. <laughs> and all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, is credited to your account. And you've got unlimited resources, divine resources, that will never run dry, that are in your account. In Adam, it was a bankrupt account. Oh, but in Jesus Christ, it's an unlimited account. Isn't that a wonderful exchange? Why would you walk out these doors and not confess your sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ? Don't leave if you don't know Jesus today. Let's get that issue settled. We're going to sing... I'm going to be standing here. I've got some pastors here that'll be here at the site. We'd love to pray with you. You'd say, listen, I want to be saved. I want to be baptized. Come talk to one of us. Now in the invitation and even after the service is over. Lord, thank you for your word. What a powerful, powerful passage of scripture. Thank you for the truth of this gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.